So um, I'm sporting um, Daffy Duck, Angry Birds, and I got these from Woot. I got like 20 packages for like five bucks, so these last forever. It's awesome. I saw show up this morning, and there's this, there's this rear view mirror right there, and it's looking right at me. I'm like, ah! Who's that? Anyway, so I'm probably going to forget somebody and thanking people for all the decorations, but really, uh, Jessa Youngblood and her army kind of did this whole front room, and it's, it's amazing. Uh, you got the, in the back, uh, Teal's. It's like Tammy Teal was like, I was leaving last night at like a little after nine. She was still here. She like left when I left. So they're back to uh, Teal's, the Tillies. It's kind of funny, right? Uh, the Stoffers, uh, just a whole bunch of people working. The Sussexes did like the shadow box in the back. It just, it's just a whole lot of people, a whole lot of work. And so we just want to say thank you to all of them. Uh, Christmas Eve services, uh, 7, 9, 11 p.m., and as I tell you, every year just start planning for that, which one you're going to go to. 7 o'clock is the only one with any child care, uh, and so if you're going to come, come early, come early, because they fill up fast, and people are like, oh, I'll be like normal element time, I'll show up at 7.05, or 9.05, or 11.05, well, maybe 11.05, but, you know, 9.05, and, and there's no seats, and so if you want to come, maybe you have family in town, you want, you want them to come and experience what is element. <laughs> You know, it'll be great, uh, but uh, and you're going to come like say you got to get here early because really, so you know, make sure you show up early for that. Plus, as we are every year, I'm going to give you a little gift too, and you're going to be like, oh, this is sweet and awesome. So, all right, so a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm always making fun of my wife's cat and stuff like that, and every time I do, I get emails from you people. It's like you weirdo cat people. All right, sending me, you're not going to get email for saying that. All right, but. <laughs> You guys, quit making fun of cats. Cats are wonderful. All right, so I'm going to change my view on this. Element's going to become a cat church, all right? We're going to be, we're going to love cats. We're going to lift up cats. So, so next Sunday is going to bring, like, bring your cat to church Sunday. We're going to offer them up and sacrifice to our Lord. Solid my service to you. So welcome to Element. If you are new this morning, great. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You can click on Live and Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and everything that goes along with this morning. So why don't you stand there, you're reading God's Word, and we'll get started. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, and it says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand your compassion, but also your truth in that compassion. That we would live lives who see the world around us as you see it. And so everything that we do would be, one, to lift you up, but two, to see the image of you in people around us so that you are fully glorified and people are honored. Amen. Have a seat. So this is our uh, series coming towards Christmas about how awesome Jesus was and is and continues to be. It's all leading again up and through Christmas of a great reflection of who Jesus is. And a lot of you have asked me questions about this. I thought I talked about this one of the weeks, but apparently not, or it wasn't on the podcast or whatever. Uh, But a lot of the historical stuff and a lot of things that we talk about, it comes out of this book that I read last year. It's called Who Is This Man? It's by a guy named John Ortberg. I'd recommend you all read it because when you read the book, you're going to go, that sounds like Aaron. No, I just more sound like him because I still have faith. You know, because it, it was really good. It's actually mowing my, my lawn one day. I was listening to this podcast. I'm like, that's amazing. So I bought the book. I read it. And you're kind of 
get in the book. So, so there you go. I did change some theology stuff because I'm always right. But <laughs> So as we start, my question for you today is, who do you think is the most compassionate person who ever lived in human history, and who spoke the most truth in human history? Jesus, right. See, it's real easy. You're in a church. It's the name of our series. If you missed that one, I, I got, you know, uh, you got serious, serious problems. But anyway, okay, the impact of, of Jesus on this world is greater than any person who ever lived. It is so deep that most people in our culture don't even realize that a lot of the things that we hold as true, like about rights and worth and dignity, all directly trace to Jesus and his words. And so as we cover what we talk about today, I hope that still brings you a sense of awe and a sense of wonder. And we at Element always pray this inspires you to surrender and follow Jesus with your life. And so many of the things that we talk about through this series, though, some people have mentioned this. They say it kind of makes Jesus sound like a soft metro hipster. I know, I know when we talk about things like compassion, dignity, and worth, our culture automatically thinks of the word tolerance. Okay? That's not really what we're talking about, but so misunderstood today. Our culture's general opinion when they think about Jesus is that he had like Michael Bolton wavy hair and that he was a highly emotional hippie that would never hurt a fly. Arguments, loud noises, they scare him. He's tender and emotional, can't stand to see or experience any pain. But the problem with that picture of Jesus is Jesus is the guy who actually inflicted a fair amount of pain. See, when Jesus saw people who were mistreated by others, he would go after those people who were mistreating other people. At the temple, this is Jesus. Jesus makes a whip out of cords and drives people from the temple area because they were cheating other people and robbing people. He scatters the coins of the money changers. He overturns their tables. In John 2.16, Jesus says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And before you say, well, that's not really too intense, just raise your hands. I'd like to know how many of you this week threw furniture around the house and went after somebody with a whip. Anybody? Okay, one person. You need some help. All right. Just, just because Jesus did it doesn't mean you get to do it. All right? That's not, that's not what that means. See, the, this is the Jesus of the Bible who's so compassionate. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. And I'm going to be flipping through a lot of stuff in Matthew today, so just kind of leave your finger in Matthew, even if I tell you to go somewhere else. But Matthew chapter 23. Uh, this is the Jesus who's so compassionate, so loving, that he says to the religious leaders of the day, Matthew 23, verse 33, he says this, You serpent, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Yeah, that's sensitive, right? That's the kind of language that, that highly sensitive, touchy-feely people tend to use. So how do we understand the Jesus we see in the scripture, you know, with, with who Jesus really is and all of this? And this is what this kind of whole series is about, bringing it together. Now, if you read the scriptures, I hope you do, and wherever you start, you're eventually going to get to the Gospels. And you can't very, go very far in the Gospels without seeing Jesus' truth and his compassion. Like this, one day a leper approaches Jesus on his knees. He begs for help. If you are willing, Jesus, please make me clean. It's the first verse we looked at this morning. In Jesus' day, if you had leprosy, you were supposed to be avoided at all costs. No one would touch somebody or help somebody with leprosy. Yet in Matthew chapter 8, we're told that Jesus is filled with compassion. And he says to the man in Matthew 8, 3, I will be clean. In Mark chapter 5, there's a demon-possessed man. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not inviting too many demon-possessed people over to my house for dinner. You? Ah, spinning around, spitting green goo. Oh, yeah, you want to come over? It'll be great. Lo- loads of fun. Right? Nobody has anything to do with people who are demon-possessed in this day. This guy cuts himself. He screams. He probably plays country music at really high volumes. <laughs> and so Jesus has compassion on him and heals him, and the guy sells all of his country music CDs. In Mark chapter 9, right? 
there's a little boy. In this culture, little, little children are worth nothing. And he's, and he's hurting, and his father is desperate. He can't get help anywhere else. And so Jesus goes and he heals this man's son. In Matthew chapter 20, two blind guys are on the side of the road, and they're crying out to Jesus. And the crowd's like, shut up. He doesn't want to hear about you. You're blind. There's something wrong with you. And Jesus yet has compassion on them. He walks over, he touches their eyes, and he heals them. In Luke chapter 7, there's a widow who has lost a son. She is weeping. Luke 7, 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And he restores her son to her. And it's not just the stories of healing. What you got to do is think, think about this. Jesus in John chapter 8 has compassion on a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Question, how do religious people tend to feel about people who are caught in the act of adultery? Right, judgment, right? Jesus is a religious leader. They are expecting Jesus just to tear this woman apart. And instead, he stands up for her in front of these men. Then he turns towards her after they're all gone and says, now knock it off, stop sinning, and stop committing adultery. There's a tax collector. His name is Zacchaeus. He is a sellout. Uh, in, in this culture, this would be about how uh, conservatives feel about Obama voters or Obama voters feel about Glenn Beck. Right? It's just, they all just kind of, this animosity that's there. Well, this is what people have you, people view tax collectors. It'd kind of be like in our country. If Al Qaeda came and Al Qaeda took over, right? I know it would be amazing, but whatever. Okay, Al Qaeda takes over, like, ah. Oh. And then your neighbor goes out and uh, starts working for them and comes to your house and collects taxes and extorts money from you to give to them. How do you feel about your neighbor? Right, okay, just like that. That's how they feel about tax collectors. They are taking money from people in Israel. They are Israelites and giving it to a foreign oppressive government. Jesus comes to this guy and he says, I'm going to go home with you. I'm going to spend time with you. And Jesus restores this man. This is a sign of friendship. And not just that, but even the stories that Jesus tells. Jesus tells a parable about a son who takes his dad's money. He runs off and squanders it on prostitutes, booze, and drugs. The story ends up at the end where the father, who is a picture of God, sees his son a long way off. He is filled with compassion. He runs to his son, throws his arms around his son, kisses his son, and brings his son home and restores him. Jesus tells another parable about a guy who's walking down the road. He gets beaten up while on this road. A priest and a Levite, the religious people of the day, they just walk by this guy like they don't even really care. And then a Samaritan walks by. Samaritan, if you were, if you were an Israelite and someone said Samaritan, you'd be like, boo, Samaritan. You know, it's like outcast, nobody, NASCAR fan, somebody who likes, ta- you know, like a, like a guy who likes Taylor Swift or, or somebody that wore a Team Edward or Team Jacob t-shirt. You're like, for shame, Samaritan. And Jesus says, the Samaritan sees him, has compassion on him, and takes care of him. Nobody talked about Samaritans like that. You have to understand, Jesus' compassion came from a place of strength, not a place of avoidance. Jesus' compassion came from what he saw when he looked at human beings. And what and how he saw people eventually changes the entire world and how we view individual human beings. And again, whether people realize or not today, we are all beneficiaries of Jesus' revolution of humanity. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. When Jesus looked at somebody, what he saw in them was the image of God because he made us. Jesus never looked at somebody without seeing that image of God. And I think also what he intended for men to really be. I think it always pierced his heart. This is why when he would see somebody with leprosy, or he would see a prostitute, or see a beggar, or somebody that somebody else hated, like a tax collector or a Gentile, he would see a creature he bestowed his image upon. Someone that Psalms 8, 5 says, the Father is crowned with glory. 
Because that is what we are. We are God's creation. We are his image bearers. We may be disguised right now as people with leprosy or tax collectors or prostitutes. And we wear our disguises really well, but we are image bearers. And so Jesus would treat these people like they wore a crown, like they were the children of royalty. Not because it was deserved, but because it was bestowed, because it was given. Now, George MacDonald, he was a pastor and writer about 100 years ago. And one of his works is called The Princess and the Goblin. And when he writes about princesses a lot in his works, and somebody asked him, why are you always writing about princesses? And this is what he said. It's great. He says, it's because every little girl is a princess. If you think about it, a princess is the daughter of a king. A prince is just the son of a king. That's every human being who is made and loved by God. So if you are a woman here, whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old, you've got to hear this. You're the daughter of a king. If you're a man here this morning, whatever scars you bear, whatever wounds you carry, you are the son of a king. Jesus changes the world because he sees us. He sees what we were meant to be. He treats everybody as if they were the child of the king. And most people, especially the poor and the sinners, are not used to being treated that way, and they're still not. And a lot of times when we talk about this in like a church service, we like this. Oh, this is so nice and fluffy. I love it when you say how wonderful I am and that God loves me. Of course God loves me. I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. Who wouldn't love me? Right? We start thinking things like that. This is why Jesus says love others like you love yourself because you love yourself too much. And many times we love ourselves with the wrong kind of love. Augustine said that we always have these disordered affections. And so what does true compassion look like? It looks like Jesus. What is true truth look like it looks like jesus you see jesus didn't put up with sin and let people get away with garbage because his compassion was so great he never wanted the disguise of prostitute or the disguise of sinner to be where his people found their identity i mean think about it jesus had too much compassion not to call people on their sin but when he did that he showed them who they were always called and meant to be Open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 7. Leave your finger in Matthew, but go to Zechariah chapter 7. Today, we as a people, we get to follow Jesus and change the world by seeing the world around us the way Jesus saw it every single day. Now, if you go through the Old Testament, God over and over talks about four categories of people that we're supposed to look out for. And a good example of this is Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, sow kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow and the fatherless. That's literally translates as the word orphan, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. So in the ancient world, you had this, this group of people, and they had no support system anywhere. These, in this day, it was the widows, it was the orphans, it was the foreigners in your land, and the poor. And so what God says is, I made them and I love them. And if my people are somewhere, what their obligation is, is to look out for people who get treated poorly. And when Jesus shows up, that's exactly what he did. Jesus is fulfilling the vocation, the calling of God's people. And I think this is one of the things that inspires people around him. Because this is what he did. They could sense that in him. And two weeks ago, I told you how very religious people believed that living for God meant you had nothing to do with the sick or the infirm. High religious people, they would teach that those people, you know, God didn't really love them, didn't care about them very much, they were less than you because they couldn't reflect God's glory and majesty because they were sick. They would say if God really cared about those people, he wouldn't let them be born that way. The blind, the lame, the deaf. But Jesus consistently shows that God does have a special heart for those people. And not just people with disabilities, but people who were thought to be religiously inferior. The tax collectors, the prostitutes. Now, you think this kind of thing doesn't go on today? It goes on today all the time. 
at Element, we work with a bunch of different organizations, but one, but two of the ones we work with are in Thailand. One is called the Tamar Center. Let me just tell you about the Tamar Center, okay? What the Tamar Center does is they go into bars in Thailand. Thailand has one of the highest prostitution rates in the world. Some families will take their girls, let them go into town and become prostitutes so they can get a new TV. How wonderful. So what the Tamar Center does is they go into these bars and they meet these women, they talk to them, they tell them about Jesus, and they invite these women to come to the Tamar Center. What they do at the Tamar Center is they get to live there. They learn a skill so they can make a livable wage so they no longer have to sell their bodies into prostitution in order to raise themselves or their families. If you go in the back, there are cards and journals in the back. Those are made by those ladies. You can buy them. The money that goes towards that goes directly to the ladies of the Tamer Center so they can get out of prostitution. Now, when these ladies come out of prostitution, what do we want to do? We want to plug them into a church, a body of believers, right? Well, you have this stigma in Thailand where you have these people with prostitutes, a lot of churches don't want them in there because, oh, you used to be a prostitute. Oh, that's, that's horrible. You know, discounting the whole idea, this is a lot of times who Jesus reached out to and, and touched. And so we worked with another uh, set of people named Randy and Edie Nelson. They actually started a church for these women. So they actually have a church body to gather together in. Right now, you guys at Element are actually paying the salary of a woman whose sole job it is to work for this church to reach out to people with HIV, the homeless, and teens who are living on the street. Why? Because religious leaders still shun those type of people, and those are the people Jesus welcomed. Everybody at the bottom of the status ladder, women, children, Gentile, Jesus treats like they are on top. Like they are on top. And if you look at Jesus in the New Testament, it will constantly challenge you. Because I guarantee you will never find anybody in ancient or modern history like Jesus, who spoke compassion and lived in truth. Because Jesus loved and brought people in, but every time Jesus had an encounter, everybody didn't walk away feeling so happy. Because Jesus takes people seriously, offers them compassion, but speaks truth. This is the honoring of the image of God in people. When you look at Jesus' conversations, his healings, who he's willing to have fellowship with, that's what got him into trouble with so many people. He brought in the marginalized. He lifted up the lowly, those who were lost. He welcomes home. And I know that's a really long setup to basically tell you that Jesus' vision of human beings has captured the moral imagination of the, of the world. It is rooted in the, the Hebrew scriptures, and sometimes the Israelites listened, and sometimes they didn't, just like us. But that is this teaching that every human being, every individual, whether you relate to them or not, whether you know them or not, is of immense worth. John Ortberg writes this. He says, The foundation for it is that every human being is made by God. They are not random blobs of tissue. They were carefully thought out, and they all mirror the mirror divine image. When you see others, if your heart is working right, you will go gasp the image of God. Now, can you imagine how the religious leaders felt when Jesus came and pointed this out to them? They did not like being told that they were a bunch of tools. They said, we we don't like that. But Jesus' words led to the greatest statements in all of Scripture. I think Romans 5.8 is one of the greatest expressions of of the worth of every human being. I think it is the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were marginalized, while we were sinners, while we were beggars and prostitutes and lost, our God came and died and saved us to bring us home. This is why Element is Jesus' church. It is the love of God that can alone safeguard, protect, and maintain the value of God's creation. And this compassion of Jesus that came upon the world formed a new community empowered by God's Spirit. And this community goes and it changes the world. And what I want to do is tell you some of the ways that it did. As I talk through some of this stuff, I want you to begin to percolate and think about in the back of your mind and ask God, how, God, how would you like me to share and show the truth and compassion to people in this world, your truth, your compassion? 
And again, this is because Jesus' movement has not stopped. So, in the ancient world, if you got sick and you had no money and you weren't related to a family who could care for you, you're toast. You're just done, just done for. In about AD 165, there's an epidemic. Uh, this uh, time it's probably uh, smallpox. We all consider it probably smallpox. It wiped out one-third of the population. Uh, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, have you ever heard of him? He actually died from that. Then in uh, 250 AD, another epidemic comes along. One-third of the cities in the Roman Empire wiped out. I don't know if you can imagine the panic. It was ugly. Uh, Greek historian Thucydides writes about how people in Athens responded during this plague. He says, they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, they were, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. At that time, it said there's no fear of God or man had any restraining influence because all the gods of the Greeks worship never said anything about caring for anybody else, never said anything about taking care of people that you weren't even related to. But there was one group, and they followed Jesus, who, wait, who Jesus went out and he touched people with leprosy, even though they were unclean. He told his disciples, you go out and you heal the sick. There's an ancient writing by Dionysius, and he writes about what happened during those plagues. He says, heedless of the danger, they, people who followed Jesus, took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pain. Open to Matthew chapter 25. Hope you still get your finger in Matthew 25, verse 35. Jesus' community of men and women, no money, no power, they remember Jesus' words. And this is what he says, Matthew 25, verses 35 and 36. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. See, when Jesus actually took people at his word, when they saw in others what Jesus saw in them, the lowest, the most humble, the most hurting, the most alone, it revolutionized the way the entire world worked. In the 300s, you have a follower of Jesus, his name is Basil. He understood the words of Jesus. He looks around and sees that leprosy is the worst life and death imaginable. If you became a person with leprosy, you had this horrible stigma. You had to walk around and yell, unclean, unclean, so no one would come near you and no one would risk touching you. And so Basil thought, what if we could build a place to care for those people with leprosy? And I know they don't have any money to pay for it, and so we've got to raise money to do it. One of the most famous sermons of that century was by Basil's brother. His name is Gregory. Uh, he's you know, as Gregory of Nyssa. I don't know if you guys ever heard about that guy. Uh, the most famous uh, sermon was to raise money for this place to take care of people with leprosy. How did Gregory start his sermon to raise money for this leprosorium? He says, lepers have been made in the image of God. That's how he starts. Can you imagine hearing that in that culture? People with leprosy are, are worth less than nothing. And that's how he starts it. And then he goes on. In the same way you and I have, and perhaps preserve that image better than we, let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. You know, that is the beginning of our understanding of what became known as hospitals. A hospice, a place to take care of people. The early church historically held councils about life and doctrine. One was in Nyssa. And that comes out of this, as they said, wherever there's going to be a major church, a cathedral, there has to be a hospice, a place to take care of the poor and, and the sick. There has to be one of those. That is why even today, when you see hospitals, a lot of them still bear these names. Good Samaritan, Good Shepherd, Marian, St. Jude, things like that. It's all an idea that starts with Jesus and his compassion and his truth. There's a follower of Jesus, his name is Henry do not. He couldn't stand the sound of soldiers crying out on the battlefield after they've been wounded, so he would devote his life to helping them in Jesus' 
name. Start an organization that we come to know today as the Red Cross. Every time you see the Red Cross, you're seeing a little thumbprint of Jesus. Lutheran pastor by the name of Theodore Fliedner trained a group of mostly peasant women to nurse the sick. This led to a movement of hospitals all over Europe and inspired a young woman named Florence Nightingale to give her life and care for the sick. My wife goes to the nursing school. She still has to learn about Florence Nightingale and take the Florence Nightingale pledge. When Florence Nightingale dies, she says, you know, I just want a cross with my initials on it. That's it. You know, nothing really to mark the grave because I want to serve with no acclaim. There's another follower of Jesus. His name is Damien. He becomes known as a guy named Father Damien. He created another place where people with leprosy could come in and be cared for and loved. And he would tell them every week, God loves you lepers. God loves you lepers. God I used to say leapers. I used to say it wrong. God loves you lepers. And then one day he gets up and he says, God loves us lepers because he contracted the disease. He gave his life to care for who God called him to care for. So you have to understand that the notion that every human individual, regardless of whether or not we have an ethnic connection, a family relationship, regardless of our intelligence, status, wealth, every human being is of immense sacred worth because we are made in the image of God and everyone has equal claim on our compassion. And this idea comes to the person of Jesus that shapes civilization. Even people today who claim to be atheists, who want nothing in the world to do with Jesus, they still see worth in individual people. Where does that come from? It only comes from Jesus and his words. If they would only see. In the ancient world, masters literally had the power of life and death over slaves. And when I say literally, I mean literally. Not Google's definition of literally, but literally the power over life and death. And so you have Jesus' community. A slave would come in, and one of the masters would get down on his knees, one of the rich and powerful, and he'd take a basin and a towel, and he would wash the feet of a slave. Where does that even happen? See, and imagine the shock when Paul writes, Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, and slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You tell me anywhere in the ancient world where anybody was saying anything like that. Nobody was. You know, in some ancient churches, a slave would end up becoming an elder in a church, and their master would be one of the parishioners, and a slave in a church would pastor one of their masters. It was amazing. Everything in Jesus' church turned everything on its head. And it took a long time, but over the course of time, the followers of Jesus looked around at social structures, and they began to say, slavery is not right. It is not the right way to show you know, the value of every human being. And so you have a guy named John Newton. Okay, John Newton made his money buying and selling human beings of a very depraved life. And he meets Jesus, and over the next few years, he is just cut to the core of his being. And he ends up becoming a pastor and a hymn writer and somebody who argues for the ending of slavery and all forms. He writes this song. This song, you may, may know, it's called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that Saved a Wretch Like Me. Romans 5, 8, While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. What a wretch, saved a wretch like me. That's his idea. And so he gave his life to make a difference, which leads to a politician named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce surrenders his life to Jesus. He goes to John Newton for career advice and says, I think I've got to get out of politics. Politics is a nasty business, kind of like it still is today. John, New- John Newton's response is, no, you stay and devote your life to the abolition of slavery, which is exactly what Wilberforce did, and he is credited with the abolition of slavery in Europe. See, Jesus changed the way we look at children. I mentioned this the very first week. In the ancient world, when a child was born, it could simply be left out to die. That's just what you did. It wasn't a scandalous or a terrible thing. It's what people went, looked and saw when they looked at an infant. Just nothing. They're disposable. I told you, the Roman writer Seneca says, We drown children at birth who are weakly and abnormal. 
Want to know the most common reason that they would drown children at birth? It was for poverty and illegitimacy. Oh, oh, poverty. Yeah, we don't want a child raised in poverty. This is what poverty was. You had a wealthy family, didn't want to have its property divided among too many heirs, so they just leave the extra kid out to die. That's what they would do. Any physical imperfections? The baby was the wrong gender, like you're a girl? Death, death. You know, we watched the movie 300. Sparta, yeah, woo, how wonderful, right? Well, in Delphi, okay, in Delphi, there was a, a registry of 600 families. So these are people with kids. Only six of them had more than one daughter. Only six. Abortion, impetside, selling into slavery. It wasn't scandal. It wasn't something you covered up. It's just the way the world worked, except for Jesus' community. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 19, 14. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Go to Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Again, in this world, children had no status, but Jesus loved kids. So Jesus' followers remembered his words. Matthew 18, 3 and 4, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What were children worth? Nothing. And yet Jesus looks at this child and says, whoever humbles himself like this child becomes the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Nobody was saying things like that in Jesus' day. And so followers of Jesus started to say, well, we're going to love kids. Even if they're not ours, we're going to love kids. The earliest instruction to the church was a document called the Didache. It's written in the first century, and it said, you shall not commit emphasize, you shall not abort a child. And so the Christian community began to prize children, all children. This leads to our idea that we have today of godparents. Because a lot of kids grew up without one or both parents, it was a harsh culture to live in. So people said, we're going to take care of kids, even if their parents die, even if they're not related to us. And so you had communities like monastic communities. And so people would come along and they had a child that didn't want it. They would go and take it there. Because these people would take them in and they would care for these children. And this is the beginning of what became known as orphanages. And little by little, year by year, over time, civilization starts to look completely different. Because now we look at children and we see something more. It is why today we are horrified when we see like one of our drones go off track and it hits a school and a bunch of kids die. Or like Sandy Hook Elementary, all those kids die. And we're like, we're horrified when children die. In this culture, if kids die, we're like, oh, whatever, we'll just make some more. No big deal. It's like they didn't care about kids. We have benefited, even if we don't even know it, from Jesus' words and what he said and what he did, his compassion and his truth. And this becomes the really, really hard part for you and me. Because the question is, now where does Jesus want you and I to be a conduit of God's compassion and truth on some people who don't look to our world like they wear a crown? Where does he want us to do that? Where is he waiting for you and I to see a prince or a princess in our lives? Because everybody matters to God. What do you think Jesus is hoping you and his community would do today? Because we do not primarily exist to make ourselves more comfortable. We exist to abide in Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to be loved by Jesus, so we can be his hands and his feet, bring him glory and honor in all that we do. And bringing him glory and honor means that we spread compassion and truth and we serve each other. You see, our world today is quickly falling back to a place where the value of God's image doesn't mean anything because we're not remembering and honoring the God who made us. And part of what you and I need to do when we follow and love Jesus is we must be those who lead our generation, the people around us, into transforming relationships with Jesus, an authentic community with one another. And so sometimes that means, yes, you are hurt, you are broken. Well, you come in, and your brokenness can be seen, and it's not hidden. But eventually you've got to get over it. 
and begin to reach out because there are also other lost, forgotten, and broken people and they need to know the love and the grace and the truth and the compassion of God. This all starts beginning and ending, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running away, while we're giving God the finger, while we're saying, get away from me, God chases us down, he saves us, he loves his people, he draws us home. Our God gave compassion to you and I. How can we not do the same for those around us? We are to be a people who live in the idea of compassion and truth. And what that means is, is you've got to look around and see where God longs to use you. I mean, it's one of the reasons Element never says, hey, just do this. I mean, we do Christmas for kids, right? And if we said, yeah, Christmas for kids is it, that, that's what we're doing, then all you guys would be, oh, yeah, boom, and you get all involved in Christmas for kids and be like, yeah, I did my job for the year. I'm done. That's not how it works. Every day, every part, you're looking around. You're looking out for what God is calling you to do, where to share his compassion, his truth with those around you. That's what we do. Why? Because our God has sought and saved us. Our God has first loved us, so we love others. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He had compassion on us. He brought us in. It's a response to what he has already done in us. And if, and if your life is sold out who Jesus is, you can't but help start to look around and share his compassion and truth. It is simply how he calls us to live. Jesus inspires and changes the world because of his compassion and his truth. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion. Communion is the place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because our God sought us while we were so far off. And he brought us home and saved us and washed us and cleaned us up. And he sends us out to be conduits of his grace and compassion and truth. Um, There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer for anything, I mean, maybe... You know, you're in a place and, and, and you're hurting and you need to share that and you want to share that. Well, they'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, maybe you're in a place where, you know, you've been living for yourself a lot and you want to start looking outside of you and offer some grace and compassion and truth. Well, you know, they'd be able to plug you in and help you start somewhere. I mean, again, it's, it's one of the reasons that we have some food and stuff in the back because we want to connect you guys to each other. And a lot of times it's a lot easier to start reaching out with other people helping you. This is why we want all of our gospel communities to have a focus that is outward, that is helping some buddy outside of them. His offering boxes on the side wall in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And we bought a field. So we need some help. Um, <laughs> uh, but guys, seriously, in all that we do, all that we do, God calls us to be conduits of his compassion and his truth and his grace and his love and his mercy. We do it because it's a response to what he has already done in us. And so we live lives that reflect that because he is so good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who lift up and honor and glorify you and how we live in compassion and how we live in truth. Father, quite honestly, there are times that that we think you love us because we are so good. And you just love us simply because you are the one who is so good. And so I ask that you would teach us to be a people who see the world like you do that we would see your image in people, that we would go gasp the image of God. And we all wear disguises so much of the time. Prostitute, sinner, thief, liar. But they're just disguises. Because you have called us your children. And you have redeemed us. 
So have us live in an understanding of that which translates into how we live our lives as children of the King. And we go out and we proclaim the greatness and goodness of our great King. And then we would understand that it is your amazing grace who has saved wretches like us that you have restored your people to who they were always meant to be. Thank you for seeing us and never giving up on us, loving and calling us home. Have us in turn be the conduit of your blessing to the world around us. We ask this in your son's great and good name. Amen.